and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by my old friends, Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, how's it going? David, old friends? He Are means you duration about, like, of our friendship. Me again? Just to no, no, no. I, I a long time. I, no, no, I, did. I meant that he's old. I meant that you guys are okay. old. Okay. You're old, yeah. That is hurtful, number one. That is not... <laughs> that true yes i'm feeling self-conscious i've had some memory issues of late steven did you have a did you have a birthday not get what i just did i called you steven after i said i had memory issues yeah yeah, no (laughs) why did no one laugh at that i was ignoring it we were worried about you i'm looking on webmd right now (laughs) (laughs) just type in under symptoms calls friend by wrong name (laughs) and immediately like the first five hits will be that cat's coronavirus. Old. That cat's right. old, or he has coronavirus. Yeah, both. yeah. Decay. Uh-huh. Actually, I was listening to a podcast. Does friend um, have trick knee? <laughs> he's decaying um i was listening to a podcast where conan o'brien was talking to the movie director judd apatow the, the mixed comedies and apatow doesn't he wouldn't talk he wouldn't say like old age he would just talk about like decay he's like in our advancing decay <laughs> it's like just pointing out exactly precisely what happens when people are getting right. old they just decay they're falling apart so you know no i actually did mean duration but um I think Heidi. I think that Tim has some things that we need to work through. So um, maybe yeah. we should spend a podcast the first is a perfect opportunity to work yeah. through those issues to publicly work through the things that are going on. Yeah. inside important. of your soul. Public, yeah, yeah. public service dealing with it is important. Exactly, which is not so much unlike what was going on the conceit in the Catcher in the Rye. Right there, you nice. go. So <laughs> we are here to answer listener questions about JD Salinger's book, The Catcher in the Rye, and there were plenty of good ones for us to to touch on. Before we do that, though, I want to remind people how they can uh, be a part of the community, be a part of the conversation. If you head over to Facebook, you can join the Close Reads podcast discussion group. Just you know, type the words Close Reads into that search bar and you'll find us. Also on Instagram, you can follow us at Close Reads Pods. And we also have our email newsletter. There will be one going out later this week. That's closereads.substack.com. Uh, and of course, we have the Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash closereads. We are in the midst of our uh, crime and punishment episodes right now. And uh, I want to thank the two of you for uh, able, ably, ably filling in or, you know, at least covering for me, doing it without me. Competently. In, in spite of our advancing Adequately, age. Yeah. In, yeah. In spite of your decay, yes. Right. <laughs> doing the show without me. I know it was a great trial for you. So uh, we, there's lots of great content uh, over there on the Patreon page. If you like or hate Crime and Punishment, then you will want to listen to these episodes. And if you're just kind of middling on, on Crime and Punishment, then at least you can get some sweet show swag for the podcast over wow, there. Wow, that like rolled off the tongue. I've you're been working on it a lot. Time. Yeah, like I'm, as I drive down the road, I work on it. Uh-huh. Um, I've Me been too. in the mirror, you know, been making my kids. I've, been, I've made a recording, so I've been listening to it while I drive of myself saying it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, basically everything that you imagine Leonardo DiCaprio doing when he's practicing his lines, that's what I've been doing prepare myself With to say those words swag well yeah. done, hey dude. nicely done okay so we are here to to discuss uh, listener questions this was a book that i assumed we would have some you know pl- plenty of questions on because there's uh, a wide variety of uh responses to the book and i want to start with a fun one because our friend jesse brown she's one of the people who pushed for this book she asked the question that i like i think it's a it's a it's a nice light one to to start out with she mentions that 
JD Salinger has been anti movie for Catcher. And the only reason that she's okay with that is because she cannot find a Holden in Hollywood. Um, so <laughs> she wants, she says, can, can we, she asks if we can cast Holden with any actor, like any actor at any age. So, for example, you can say, this is her example, Reese Witherspoon when she was in Man in the Moon. And she says she picked this because there's no way you'd pick her, but you can see what that allows us to see what she means. I mean, I might, why can't we, why can't we uh, just do a, reversal on this like subvert the story a little bit and just make holden a boy i mean a girl like why can't this why why do why couldn't it could, be, it could be reese witherspoon yeah reese witherspoon and man in the moon that's not my choice though tim heidi who would you guys choose oh i don't know tim you go first i should have researched this oh man what about okay deep cut here river phoenix oh he would have been good yeah, that is a good one. That's a really good one. I actually think, yeah, I think River Phoenix is, like, he would have played it well. I wonder, I don't know what our, our, our listener demographic is, but some of them are like, who is River Phoenix? Is he any related to that guy that played the Joker? Because I don't, like, yes, I don't trust yes. that guy. <laughs> that guy gives weird. That guy speeches. is weird. <laughs> Are you going remember... to tell them that, yes, he is their brothers? Yeah, he is. No, I'm just, I'm just assuming that everyone's doing a Google search right now on River Phoenix. <laughs> I remember when he died. I did too. Um, Speaking yeah, of being old. it was sad. Um, I was extremely young when he died. So <laughs> I remember too. being told about how he died. By, by my parents and grandparents. Yes. <laughs> I, remember, um, I remember him for the... Uh, didn't he do the young Indiana Jones stuff? Oh, he did. Yeah, he and then did. he was, uh, he was in the beginning of, um, uh, the last crusade. Yeah, last there crusade. Playing. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, do you have one then Heidi? No. Do you? Oh uh, yeah. I've got two. Okay. Go. Okay. So I've got I'll take one. Why don't you text me one and I'll use one right now. And then you do the other one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll just go. text you. I'll just text you somebody else. Okay. okay yeah. So I've got one of an actor who, is current and then one of an old one because Tim chose River Phoenix. How about how about like twenty year old Paul Newman? That would that would be good too. Wow. To me, like like the guy who plays Butch Cassidy combined with the guy who plays mm-hmm. Cool Hand Luke combined with the guy who's in The Hustler. Just imagine him being like eighteen, nineteen, twenty, playing the seventeen year old. That's that makes sense to me. And then, have you guys seen the movie Whiplash? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, so, I love um, that movie. Yeah. Okay, so how about how about Miles Teller? A little he's bit younger version of Miles Teller. Yeah, he's the the drummer. David, that is perfect. That's absolutely perfect. David's so good at this. Yeah, you are so, good at this. Do you remember Chris O'Donnell in Scent of a Woman? That's like kind of oh, how I yeah. picture him too. I remember Chris O'Donnell being in the Three Musketeers. I do too. Actually, remember that. Unfortunately, sadly for my development, I mean, it was an okay movie. <laughs> um, I, I was probably. But he's got this baby face with this. He's really good in Scent of a Woman, I thought. And that's kind of how I picture Holden for some reason. Mm. Like this like brooding melancholy right under the surface that's really obvious, but like he's trying to not show it. That's yeah. kind of why that's kind of how like Paul Newman and Miles Teller both have that sort of brooding melancholy under the surface. They obviously they have to be younger. We have to do a little bit of research to figure out who we should have play him that's like you know, actually young enough to pull it off. I'm not sure that I have a firm enough grasp on young Hollywood right now. I know. I know. 
Hey, can I tell you guys before we go too far astray, since we're going to have fun with movie actors, about my Reese Witherspoon encounter live on the set of Sweet Home Alabama? Stop it. Uh, is this yeah. a made up story? No, like I promise you. Andrew no, this is absolutely true. Told us that he met, what's that lady who plays in? Um, well, never mind. Because now I can't even remember the name of the movie. Because I'm so old. Yes, The Sound of Music. Remember yeah. that story Andrew always tells about how he went to the went into the Swiss Alps and there's The Sound of Music. Is this like that? I had never heard him tell that story. He says that he's the reason. That story. You're old too. He, he, <laughs> says that, he says that he's the reason that Julie Andrews ended up being in Sound of Music. Yeah. Yep, you and Your I were in tells- Colorado, and he told us that story when we were sitting at the conference. Oh, this does sound vaguely familiar. Yeah, I think I might have dispatched. Let's that just to say the, there was like, a bird, a slingshot, of my mind. a rock, <laughs> an injured actress, and then I believed Julie him Andrews all the way up coming the onto end. the scene. <laughs> Tell your story though, because we do have questions we need to answer. I was living in North Georgia, and a friend of mine was working on the movie set. Sweet Home Alabama, which was filmed in Crawfordville, Georgia, an hour away. I was doing my master's degree and I had a bunch of studying and writing to do. And I was like, why don't I just go to the set? If they don't use me as an extra, I'll just get to read and write, you know, kind of adjacent to the set. So I go down to the set. They put me in this big bar room scene and they actually put me behind the bar. I'm going to be the bartender, one of the two bartenders. They're dressing the set, setting up the cameras and the lights, getting everything ready. The director walks in. Okay, so by the way, a little bit of preface. When I first get to the set, I'm walking around with my friend. And my friend's name is Melissa. And I say, so who's the star of this movie? And she says, oh, it's Reese Witherspoon and this person and this person. And I said, I kid you not. I said, who's Reese Witherspoon? And one of the guys that was kind of like, I don't know, a grip or a, you know, a camera jockey or something heard me say it. And he said, have you been living under a rock? That's a valid <laughs> question, I think. I, it, she, was, she was only one fairness, of the biggest. It was a long time ago. And <laughs> yeah, when Sweet Home Alabama came out, though, she was pretty famous. I genuinely did not know who she was. Didn't know who she was. Okay, so now I'm behind the set. I'm behind the bar. They're getting everything ready for this bar scene. And like on a movie set, you just have to wait it out all the time. There's just so much prep for so little shooting. So I sit down behind like one of these chairs behind the bar and there's a book there. The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. And yeah. I heard about this. Okay, by the way, by the way, <laughs> I knew who Jonathan Franzen was and I didn't know who Reese Witherspoon was. Right. That sounds about yeah, right. Like that says something about me. Okay, so I start thumbing through the book and I'm like, oh man, I should read this. This, you know, like I read a page or two and then someone else from the set, you know, employed by the movie sees me reading this book and they said, um, excuse me. Don't you love how everyone in Hollywood talks to him? Um, excuse me. <laughs> Please don't touch the talent's things. They did not call her the talent. Oh, that's, a, I that's definitely what they you. call people. They call them for sure. They definitely called her the talent. I no, that no, wasn't no. real. There's no way that's real. No, okay. when I was anyway. taking classes, film studies classes in school, that was that's like they definitely that's the terminology for sure. Wow. Okay. So I put down the corrections. And then I get ready for the scene and I'm like, man, I'm going to be the bartender at this in this big Hollywood movie. The director walks in. 
He's looking at everything. He likes everything. And then he looks at me and he said, uh-uh, we need somebody a little, a little bit more brawny. No, no, no. Uh. We need somebody a little bit more burly. You're not and they burly bring in this enough. huge, I wasn't burly enough. So they brought in this like lumberjack to take my place. Oh, and that was when story. my Hollywood dreams ended. Oh, so, that's a sad yeah. story. Have yeah. you, I want to know more about what happened with inside your soul after that though. <laughs> did you decide well, that you needed to lift weights and like get burly or something? Or? Did you start I decided drinking I needed protein? to lift weights and <laughs> I just started pounding protein shakes. <laughs> you know, I exactly mean, that could happen. Well, she was more- so burly. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Well, she was one of the most famous actresses in the world at the time. I guess it was because of movies like Cruel Intentions and Legally Blonde. So I suppose I can see why Tim might not have. Um, yeah, it wasn't in my wheelhouse. She was in that The Importance my- of Being oh. Earnest, though. Oh, she, wait, she was in what? The Importance mm-hmm. of Being Earnest. I didn't see that. Huh. Well, anyway, back anyway, to the, yes. back to the yeah, sorry. questions. Sorry. <laughs> um, Jill asks this question. She mentioned that early on in the discussions there was some conversation about the book having a definite formal structure. And we didn't really go back to that. Um, and, and so I think this is, I'm glad Jill brought this up and Heidi, you in particular were uh, harping on this. If I can use a, if, if you can take that without it having negative connotations. So uh, I was wondering I if, if you could uh, talk about some of what you were thinking or noticing or, um, you know, feeling uh, regarding the, quote, definite formal structure of, of uh, The Catcher in the Rye. Sure. Overall, the story does follow a narrative structure, but it's, it's a downward structure. And um, so if you were to kind of plot this, imagine plotting this on a graph, mm-hmm. the, the plot points corresponding to Holden's interior state because mm-hmm. that's the real contemplation of the book, then, then you can even see it in your mind that it's a very downward structure. Um, as he's going, he's having more, more and more, he's, he's leading more towards a crisis. So that's why the book kind of feels like, you know, a train is coming or he's going to fall off a cliff. And that is the, uh, the metaphor that he uses for this idea, his longing for redemption is the idea of falling off a cliff, right? He's running towards a cliff. That's the metaphor and he wants to be caught. Um, and so the, the entire narrative follows that structure, just like the metaphor. One of the things that I, and, and one of the other questions pertains to this. So I'm going to answer this question. <laughs> one of the things that I particularly noticed was um, the phrase that he sees carved into the wall at the end. He sees F U. Um, yeah. Somebody asked about that times, yeah. three times. And mm-hmm. the first time he sees it, he rubs it off. Mm-hmm. The second time he sees it, it's on a subway wall and he can't rub it off. And the third time he sees it, it's under glass in a museum and he can't even touch it. And that's mm-hmm. a very formal idea that follows kind of the larger narrative pattern of the novel is that things are getting, his innocence is becoming more and more lost. The darkness of the world is becoming more and more entrenched. And so when I talked about the narrative structure uh, of the novel, I was talking 
less about, you know, you're not going to find like a, some kind of neat little chiasm, but more like the structure of the novel and the narrative voice and the plot all ties into these various metaphors that are used throughout the novel. Mm. So you mentioned charting it. <clears throat> you know, you typically will talk about like rising action, falling action, denouement, you know, clim- the climactic moment, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Is it how would you do something like that? I mean, first of all, I actually, would say, side I would note, say this is do you think that's a valuable exercise? Yeah, I do. I think it's particularly helpful when you're learning how to orient yourself within a novel. Um, and, and, so in this, you know, this is something Tim and I talked about on the crime and punishment episode is how, uh, how it's so different to, to find your way find, for me to find my way through the Russian novels, because I'm so used to reading Western novels. Yeah. And so I don't necessarily at this point, I'm not necessarily looking to plot everything in my mind as I'm reading a Western novel. I just kind of it's geography I'm pretty familiar with, but I, I think when you're first, um, kind of learning to find your way through the geography of a Western novel, it's really, it's helpful to think through, you know, is this a turning point in the novel? Is this a resolution? Is this a moment of repentance? All those kinds of things that we talk about on the podcast. Um, but I don't think it needs to be front and center. Those things are subordinate. They're, they're helpful, but they're not the novel itself. They're not the thing itself. They're what the novel's made out of, if that makes sense. And so, but in this novel, I think it follows a different trajectory. It doesn't, I don't think at least it has rising action. It's mostly falling action from the very beginning. And I think that's why it's sometimes a little disorienting is we're, 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 we're looking unconsciously or consciously for this sense of rising action and a turning point. Whereas instead it's more of a steep decline from the beginning. And the question is whether or not he's going to ever get caught whether there is a catcher in the story. And, and, and that's the central metaphor. And that's the feeling that of kind of falling or that we get throughout the novel. Mm. Well, and the thing about coming of age stories generally is that they tend to, um, what's the word em- emphasize, I guess, um, like internal action or well, I guess what people would call internal monologue, um, internal development mm. over a, like a series of things that are happening. Right. And partly because so often they're, you know, because they're um, focusing on the, the changing perspectives that, you know, that's one of the reasons why it feels like he's not trustworthy because he's discovering things. And so it's much more about the, dis- what, what a discovery does to the person's soul as it's growing and changing than, than it is about a series of actions. And so that can mean that, plotting it or structurally it can feel a little bit disorienting and so you have to like it's like a different it's almost like a different accent to or a different i was gonna say a different language but what i'm trying to say is it's not a full different language compared to a regular plotting of a novel it's like a different it's like for a second you have to listen a little bit differently because the way they speak is it's like a cockney accent versus like a proper british accent or something agreed Mm. Mm -hmm. it's the same language but it has a different kind of slant to it and that right that that i think structurally is some of why i mean the content is also very uh very focused on the the falling off but that that we are kind of waiting for these up for an upward movement at some point. And one of the things we talked about last week is 
there's there's doubt at the end whether or not there is a catcher. I think there is, but other people might not. And so, but that sense of, of, of falling off a cliff is part of the structure of the novel as well as part of kind of the internal monologue of, of Holden. Mm. Tim, do you, do you want to add something to this? I briefly will add something. And then I have a question for both of you guys. I can imagine um, plotting this as a homecoming story. You know, he leaves the school and he spends the night in New York City, and there's all these kind of crazy adventures, but we know his ultimate destination is going home. Mm-hmm. We also know that he really wants to see Phoebe. He's a little bit afraid of seeing his parents. And the kind of climactic events are the arrival at home and his reunion with Phoebe. Now, I mean, and that might be, it's a little bit different, I think, than what Heidi was saying that it's a downward movement. I don't know though that a homecoming plot is an upward move. This homecoming plot, I don't think it's an upward movement, you know, as opposed to the Odyssey, which I think is like the crescendo of the upward climb is the arrival in Ithaca. And I don't think that this is that kind of upward plot. Mm-hmm. So, so, does that mean that it's a downward plot? Well, I don't know. Not necessarily. Yeah. So you and I might just disagree on this because the movement of, of the, the forward movement of a homecoming story is the desire to get home, but Holden doesn't want to go home or he doesn't associate his home with the normal feelings of home, the way Odysseus does. He is, he views home as a place of anxiety, a place of like, I, I think this is a descent into hell story. Um, so, but you're right. He does arrive home and his, uh, the most comforting figure at home is Phoebe with whom he is reunited in the end. So I think you can argue that for sure. Yeah. And I want to say that the time in New York does feel like, it's a hellscape more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So that part of it, I can see like your argument that it's a downward trajectory. Yeah. Every, like almost everything in New York feels like he's, he's moving through these different kind of episodes in a hell like environment. Well, there's almost a sense that, um, that the, wherever he is telling the story, whatever the facility is, has a, a sort of purgatorial, like there's a sort of, um, ideally a purga- like a purgation mm. kind of going on maybe perhaps even in the telling of the story so <clears throat> I can see that I was thinking about how um, Phoebe the name Phoebe is the derivative of the Phoebus mm-hmm. which is the Greek which is another name for or a a name I guess that was given to Apollo the Greek god and mm-hmm. that means bright, but Apollo was like the, was, I mean, wasn't he known for his, um, like as the protector of the young and was like, was, oh, was, the, was one of the gods that was, um, called upon or prayed to as far as educating children and protecting, protecting the young and things like that, as well as, you know, poetry and, uh, diseases and all those sorts of things. He was an enlightener and there would, he would have, he had, um, young men and women, acolytes and priests 
Um, yeah. And I, I do think that there is a, a connection between the name Phoebe and the idea of the enlightener. Wikipedia says, yeah, Wikipedia says he was the, um, the God of the protection of the young. Hmm. Um, as well as sun, light, oracles, knowledge, healing, diseases, music, poetry, songs, dance, archery, herds and flocks, and the protection of the young. <laughs> that And, and um, there's a sense in which you were talking about sort of a hellscape and um, you know, a sort of a journey into the underworld. So that got me thinking about, that got me thinking again about Apollo and the sort of concept of the, the ancient stories. And um, I w- do you think then that she is meant to be some sort of a, um, like she draws him out of the hellscape or that she protects him while he's in it or how, how do you how do you read her role if if this is a descent into hell how and, and then it ends at her well actually it ends at the zoo i guess and they're together are they still in hell at the end is that what you would argue or does he descend into hell and then she helps draw him out of out of that hell escape i think that it's overstating it to say that phoebe is um leads him out of hell the I, I, I really think that there's a lot of language about Phoebe at the end that indicates that she is losing her own innocence in the world. Um, the fact that she's Benedict Arnold, the fact that she screams at him to shut up and he, he is so appalled by that, um, that, that she is caught in her own um, loss uh, trauma and loss of innocence. And as somebody brought up in the, in the Q and a thread, that is, I think, objectified in the carousel. She gets on the carousel, she starts going around. And, um, but I think the message is less that Phoebe is, um, the wise child who leads him out of hell and more that they have found each other while still existing yeah. in hell. Yeah. And I they agree. are yeah. each other's companions. Um, I I I think it overstates to say that she is some kind of guide that leads, you know, some kind of Beatrice figure that leads him out sure. towards paradise. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it strikes me too that like ostensibly or in theory anyway, their home is should be the place, a place of safety, right? Mm-hmm. But they've been through so much that and the, the, how the, how the family unit itself has been through so much and, and the trauma seems to keep it from being that way. Like he, he doesn't feel like he can go there during the day. They have this sort of secret meeting in the house and then he has to sneak back out again. And so well, and he doesn't end up there. He ends up in right. a, an institution. Right. But, right. And he doesn't seem to say that the family has been drawn together through it. He says that no. his brother visits him, but it's not like, you know, this restoration of a close and intimate home-like relationship that we would want for right. him. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Cause we can talk about more of this as we, as we keep answering questions since that's what we're here to do. Um, although Tim, did you want to add anything else? I was going to ask a question. I'll yeah. do it really quickly. Go ahead. It is a Q and a episode. So, you know, feel free. What's the climax of the book for you guys? Heidi? Well, I was on mute so that you wouldn't go to me first. (laughs) Um, I think 
the sorry I, I know right um because I was I've been thinking about the the reason I said that I've been thinking about this all week like and I don't I don't know because it doesn't to me have that turning point you know moment of that leads to the denouement probably pro, probably it's going to Phoebe's school um and 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 his his connection with her the the moment of potential hopefulness is when she gives him the hat um but i think before that the big the kind of the thing that makes that moment inevitable is going to her school hmm Instead of going and get, instead of going to Colorado, like the choice to stay and to go be with Phoebe rather than running away. I think that's the turn, the act, the only turn he makes in the whole book towards some kind of wholeness and healing. Everything Mm. else is a descent into hell. That's the thing. But, but he's, so it's true that ultimately that if you're just looking at results, right, that that's the only turn he makes towards wholeness and healing, I think. But it's not Mm -hmm. like he's not trying to find healing and he's just, he has no, he doesn't have a guide. So in a lot of ways, I think that the the turning point then or, or the climax is when he goes home and sees her because I think that's where he has it's the first time when he really has like a real companion or he has he turns to someone who can can give him in a sense some guidance I mean he's not she's not drawing him out of hell I agree with the that Mm -hmm. statement from earlier there's a line when he's there where it says how would you know you weren't being a phony the trouble is you wouldn't he's talking to her and it says he's not he knows that he doesn't think that Phoebe knew what he was talking about. She's only a little child and all. And for, for some reason, that line has stuck out to me as kind of a turning point line in the book where he's, he is stopped. He's being more, he's turning his criticisms, his cynicism on himself more than he has been. Whereas for most of the book, he has been turning his cynicism and his skepticism on other people and kind of judging them. And in this moment when he's with her, he begins to start thinking about kind of questioning his own motives a lot more than, than he had been previously. And I think that in going to her, that sort of operates as a bit of a turning point because then the rest of the novel sort of descends from that moment. He goes home, he meets with her. She's worried about him. She expresses some genuine worry because he's, um, he is, um, not he's got kicked out, gotten kicked out of the school and she keeps saying dad's going to kill you you know that sort of thing and then after that he leaves and he goes to antolini and the action from there descend, begins to sort of actually descend and, and move pretty quickly um so i i think i would argue um that it happens a bit earlier than what you're saying but mm. it's not structured in a way that makes it clear you know right. that, that that it makes it either obvious to pinpoint a sort of moment when the action changes totally agree what is what do you think tim I think that structurally it's around the time that you guys are describing kind of when he's being reunited with Phoebe and specifically when he's at his school, but it's, if, if there is a climax, it's so muted. Mm-hmm. It is so muted that it's hard for me to point to a particular episode and say, boom, 
that's that's the one there we have just arrived at the climax right agreed and i think if we i think if we asked listeners we'd probably come up with 10 different potentials which gosh that says something about the book if we are all a little bit unsure on what the climactic moment is doesn't that that says something about what's going on inside this book but that is a story for another day. We should, I don't want to derail us. This is not my question time. This is listeners question time. Okay. Well, here's one from Colleen. Then this is, I guess, technically this is for you and I, Tim. She says, um, she, she, at first she warned us by saying she might post more than one question, which is totally fine. But she says, she says that, um, Okay, so she mentions how Tim, you and I both mentioned that we liked the book the first time we read it. So then she says, did either of you end up being Salinger geeks for a while or still? If by any chance you did read the rest of his works, how do you think they stack up next to Catcher? And Heidi, does Catcher make you want to read more of his his works? And she says, I'm assuming you didn't seek it out more since you were meh about it when you first read it. So, well, Heidi, is that true? Have you read his other stuff? I read Frankie and Zoe because... Um, Fran- Franny and Zoe. Yeah. Franny, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, not super carefully, as you can tell, because I don't remember the main characters' names. <laughs> so I read it because it was given to me as a gift, and I liked it fine. So, uh, Tim? I liked it fine. It's damning with faint praise. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. True. I did have a Salinger phase. I read Nine Stories, Franny and Zoe. Oh gosh, there's one other. Raise high the raise roof. High the, what, no, I didn't Seymour? read that one out. Seymour, an introduction? Carpenter? Maybe so. But I really liked Franny and Zoe. It sounds like a little bit more than Heidi did. I really liked Franny and Zoe. And I liked some of the nine stories. But I, I think compared to Catcher in the Rye, the others um, are, they don't, they're not as strong. I've, all, I've also read to Esme with Love and Squalor. That's a short story. And that I think was that's me. in nine stories. That's in nine stories. And I loved that. I thought that was, I loved that. I forgot that that was Salinger. I actually like, okay. So after I read it, I read pretty much everything. Uh, I haven't gone back and read everything since then. So it's been a while, <laughs> but I liked Franny and Zoe better than Catcher in the Rye. Hmm. Um, but I need to go back and read it again. Now that I've read this yeah, to I see if read I it super carefully, I might like it better now. Yeah. Um, Okay. That's a really, to me, that's a really hopeful book. Franny and Zoe? I rem- yeah, I remember Franny and Zoe kind of feeling like, man, there's an uplift at the end of this book. It's not that it's without its dangers and its potential cynicisms, but yeah. for some reason, I felt like there was much more of a path forward than the conclusion of Catcher in the Rye. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's... Let's talk about the carousel. Catherine Kirkpatrick asks. Um, she says, can you talk about the carousel? Why, yes, we can. It pretty much precluded me from thinking the ending was any kind of hopeful, says Catherine. It seemed to me that Holden had resigned himself to the fact that there was no getting away from the pointless circle that traps him. Um, Aaron commented on her thing saying that it, w- it was interesting that Phoebe wanted him to join her on the carousel, but he opted to just sit and watch. And then Catherine said, that made me feel even worse. Like he was surrendering to the idea that being a catcher is possible. It really did blind me to what was happening with that, the, with the hat though. So I'm interested in how the two images play against each other or with each other or whatever. So carousel, despair, darkness. 
<laughs> is this a hope? Is this is that is that all this is? Is this the the circle of life goes on and we're all going to die? I'm going to die. You guys have seen that movie, right? Yes. What movie is that? Bill Murray. Is movie. it a River Phoenix movie? <laughs> no, the Bill Murray movie. Um, uh, what about Bob? Groundhog Day. Wait, what about, yeah, what about what Bob? Where he's saying with the family uh, and the, the kids, like the doctor's kid is like... Dr. Marvin. Yeah, Dr. he's Leo lying in the room. With, little kid's very, very... Uh, he, he's very dark and he's just lying there in bed. I'm going to die. <laughs> We're all going to die. <laughs> Speaking it's of which, nice. my three-year-old asked me a bunch of questions about that last night. But that's another story oh. for another day. Um, so carousel, Tim, is this a is this a is this a dark symbol? Is that all it is? I I didn't read it that way. Because I mean there's also the promise of grasping the brass ring. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't know why I did not feel like it was just kind of like this, you know, the endless cycle of birth, death, renewal. You know, I, I don't know why. I'm not saying it's not there because carousels do go around and don't really go anywhere. So I don't deny that there's the possibility of like a really fruitful metaphor there. That's just not how I read it. Heidi? Yeah, I think that this, (laughs) there is no indication in this novel that Salinger is inviting us to any kind of transcendent life beyond this world. So I do think that the brass ring in this story is the moment of hope for Holden. It's that Phoebe is still in, she's, she's still, even though she's just like everybody else going around the circle uh, and that the horses are decorated beautifully, but really it's just going around in a circle that he sees that Phoebe is reaching out to get that brass ring. And that is our hope. To have somebody catch us and anchor us to this life so that we are not falling off a cliff alone. And so that we can, while we're going around the same circle, we can reach for the brass ring. That, to Salinger, is the hope that he's offering. Now, we as Christians know there's far more than that. And so whether or not we see that with despair or whether we see it as maybe an invitation for something better. But I don't think within the novel, within the world of the novel, that there's more than that. I think the common reading of that scene is that the carousel, you know, if if we're going by the symbolism, it's the concept of the, the carousel going in a circle is suggestive of of sort of the the notion of infinity or something not ending. And so what he is doing there is he is accepting that his childhood or his youth is not never ending. So when he mm-hmm. says I'm not getting on it, he's accepting that that he can't live as if he's going to be a child forever. Right. And so the, he's in, like in a way that. there's a sort of realism in what he's doing there. And mm-hmm. he's so he's he's basically saying okay, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to um allow myself to 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 put away I don't I don't mean I don't want to I'm not taking I'm not using this phrase because I think it because I'm trying to be scriptural, but I'm going to have to put away childish things. I'm going to have to accept that I have to be an adult now. You know that the way that I li- deal with the world is going to have to um be on a more mature with a more mature level. And so some people will even read that that's one of the reasons why he allows himself to to go to the institution. And the and the reason that he's telling the story that the expression of the story itself is a sort of is a sort of realization that he has to 
figure out how to deal with these things. And so he goes to the institution having then said, okay, I'm not going to be a child forever. I can't, the, the Peter Pan story is not real. But the fact that she's on it and that she's chasing after the ring suggests that, not that her childhood is going to be forever, but that there is still some of her childhood, still some of her innocence while it's being, while it's fading, there is still some of it there. And that there is, and that in that there is still a distance between them. You know, they're, they're there for each other. They're together. They've exchanged the red hunting hat. She's she's still able to ride the ride, and he's realizing mm-hmm. that and is not can't. the world for me. You know, I'm, you know, he's I I can't be in Neverland to, to to kind of borrow the Peter Pan thing. It's not my place right now. But she still has time to be there for a while, and so in a way, him sitting there in the rain is while the rain pours on him is in a it's in a sense that there's a sense in which he's sort of protecting her time in in that Neverland. That, that he's allowing her to be there. He's protecting her. You know, he's watching over her, even though the rain's falling over him. So that's how I read. That's I think that's a that's my reading of some pretty mm-hmm. common readings of that scene. And, and I don't view it as a sort of the the way they were the way Catherine was was reading it. Um, that it's not hopeful. I don't think it's meant to be unhopeful. I think it's meant to be. This is. I don't even think he's resigned. Maybe he's resigned himself. That may be the word to use Catherine's word. But I th- I think that that the realism that springs out of him there in a sense is hopeful in a way. Um, and the fact that he doesn't just go walk under the, you know, he sits out in the rain and, and watches over her, I think is hopeful in a sense. Uh, but that might just be me. No, I agree. Anyway, do you want to add anything to him? No, I like that, David. I mean, it's not really my reading it, you know, it's my take on other people's readings. <laughs> so what if I'm willing to give you credit for it? All right, I'll take it. Um, okay. Don't push me. You know, if you're going to push me into taking credit for something, then um, let's see. Uh, where's the, I just, okay. Sarah asks, Holden uses the word phony throughout this book, but isn't Holden himself a phony. His inner monologue about people doesn't match his outer dialogue with them. And if he is a phony is Salinger saying we are all phonies. Tim, Thoughts? I think that Holden is a phony. I think that he sometimes maybe even kind of glimpses it. Um, I think Salinger probably thinks that it's like, the, I think it's the great temptation that Salinger is trying to alert us to that we are all phonies, kind of whether we like it or not. The question for me about the book is that, is there a solution posed to that phoniness? Like, and I think Holden doesn't fully kind of grasp that he's just the same as everybody else. I think maybe he will off stage after the play ends. Um, maybe, but I don't really know. Um, but I, yeah, I think the answer is, yeah, we're all phonies. Yeah, Holden's one. Um, I think the answers to those questions are yes. Heidi? Yes, yes, yes. And I think this is one of the reasons why teenagers, why this is a better book for adults, because that is the entire meta narrative of the novel. It's yes, Holden is a hypocrite. Holden is a phony. Holden is self absorbed. Holden is. Uh, self-centered, Holden is blind, he's not seeing it. That and and what Salinger does that's beautiful, and this is what I love about this novel, is that he invites us to see that about Holden and love him anyway. Mm-hmm. 
And that is the only way, I think, to read this novel and be hopeful and redemptive and changed by it. I think if we read this pointing a finger and being like, I figured out the secret, Holden's a phony, then we judge him and then we lose the only way that this novel can save, be, be salvific for us. <laughs> so, but yes, he is such a phony. He's so hard to love and he is blind and he's accusing people of the very thing that he, he's hurting people as he's asking them to help him and then judging them for abandoning him. And he's doing all of these really unlovable phony things. And we as the reader can either reject him for it or we can be changed by it. So, okay. Why do you think then that people who love this book, many in many cases, love it because they find, they, because they love him? That's good. I think that's really good. I think the, 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 the risk that every great novelist, every great novelist takes a risk with their book. If you're not taking a risk, you're just the, you're, you're writing hack work. Like your book is going to have the risk of being misunderstood. And the risk of one of the risks of misunderstanding this book, there's a couple. And I think one of them is to be like the people who take him so seriously as the prophet of the age, right? The people who are like, Holden gets me and I'm so disillusioned with life and I'm going to go try to assassinate people <laughs> and because Holden is the only one telling the truth. One of the whole points of this novel is that Holden is also a phony. So if you take Holden so seriously, like many adolescents do or many wounded adults do, then I think you're missing the novel. The other side, the other way to, to miss this novel is to judge him so harshly and it's just some whiny kid and it's just so full of profanity and it's and 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 there's nothing that this book has to offer me there's nothing that this character has to offer me so the people who i think can enter into this and be like wow this kid's so unlovable but i'm going to love him anyway and i'm going to be hopeful for him that i think that that those are the best readers of the, the book yes those are the best readers of the book I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I got on. That was Heidi. That was great. That was a. That was really good. <laughs> Heidi got excited about something. I got excited about it. <laughs> I think that was like. I mean, I think that was exactly spot on. I and mean, it's exactly spot on. Thank you, Heidi. I have a question. Wait. Okay. I have a question. <laughs> have you, since we closed the reading of this book between last week and this week, have you kind of soured a little bit on the book? No, not at all. I haven't soured on it, but I don't think that this book is, I, I think the same, I, I like it way better reading it as an adult. Um, but I am not a, a triumphant lover of Catcher in the Rye. I think that it is very limited in its capacity for redemption. And I think that the capacity for redemption in this book is to love Holden and to see the image of God in Holden. I do not think that, that the content of this book offers a, an invitation to transcendence unless you have a very healthy moral imagination. So I'm not going to put you on the spot here. Yeah, please. Is a book having the capacity for redemption, a necessary qualifier for its greatness. Oh, 
it's a really good question for its greatness. I mean, I guess I'd have to ask you to define greatness. Also, the other word. What other word? The other word in your redemption. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this is a, <clears throat> that's a disorienting question for me. Um, the question of whether a book is redemptive because I don't know why, but I just don't think about that. It's not like I usually, <laughs> I don't know. This is going to say, this is probably going to, I'm telling on myself right now, but like, I don't think did the book that was the book that I just read redemptive until someone asks me to think about that i don't and i don't mm-hmm. know exactly why why do you Heidi, why is that what about me is that what do you knowing me why do you think that that's the case <laughs> um knowing you i think that's the case because you love the craft like you're do you think like a craftsman like how is this book structured how is the language how's the like that that is like i love that about the way that you read um, but I do think that about books, but I think that about books in the capacity of, is this a must read book? So like when I, we talk, but when we talk about that, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. when we talk about that, do we mean, does this, when we talk about a book being redemptive, like, do we mean, does the character find redemption in it? Or do we mean, is this book going to change my soul? Like make me a healthier <laughs> person, feed me in some way? Because those two things are not mutually, are, do not have to happen at the same time, I guess. Right. Perfectly possible for those to be mutually exclusive. For characters to descend into hell and never get out of it. And for me to be able to look at that and say, my soul has changed because I read about this very dark journey this person went on and never came out of in a positive light. Right. I mean, that's the entire concept of horror stories, basically. Mm-hmm. Like that, and then to, and like a horror story is basically a dark fairy tale, right? So, I mean, you, that's why the question always throws me because I don't ever know if we're talking about the same things. Like, the book could have, I could offer hold absolutely no redemption and still give me something that's going to feed my soul. Uh-huh. Right. And so, I, that's where I wonder, like, are we, are we talking about the same sorts of, sorts of things? And ultimately, the question, behind that question is, are we looking for the same sorts of things? And the answer is no. <laughs> right. So uh, I guess I just kind of tan- took that Tim's original question on the tangent. Well, I guess here's, let me offer a clarification. This book is controversial. And part of the discussions that we've had on the podcast and on the Facebook page have revolved around that question. Why is it controversial? Should it be controversial? Uh, Is it a book to be wholeheartedly embraced or is it a book to be unequivocally rejected? And I think that if that's, so that's kind of the lens through which I've been discussing the book on the podcast is, is should it be rejected or embraced? And I think that And I've also been thinking about it in terms of the other discussions that we've been had on the Patreon episodes on crime and punishment, in which I would say everybody should read crime and punishment. Mm. That is one of the greatest novels in the history of the world. Everything about it, like set aside the fact that it's about, or don't don't set it aside, including the fact that it's about an axe murderer. This is one of the greatest, most redemptive, best books ever. Read Mm. it. And here's why. I cannot say that about Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. I can't. And I think that that's kind of, so I've been trying to say some people should read this book, but you must have 
you must have a healthy moral imagination or this could potentially be a damaging book. It really could. So, and I do still hold that with Catcher in the Rye. Mm -hmm. I think there is a, like a lot of goodness in it. And I think there is a lot of sickness in it. So let me, mm-hmm. let me ask you something then as a parent and let's, let's just set aside like as a teacher, but as a parent, uh-huh. you have how old Jack? Thir- 13? He's 13. Okay. So sometimes you'll text or the three of us will text together and we'll talk about books. Like should Jack read this or whatever? And we've talked about this one a little bit, but how would you know, like as a parent that your kid is ready and every kid's going to be different. And you don't need to like tell us all about your right. child's, the state of your child's <laughs> and your relationship with him. But like, just to speak in general terms, because I'm sure there's lots of people who are listening who are saying, man, when should I let my kids read this? So how, how do you go about making that decision with a book like this? Sure. So I don't know if Jack's going to read it next year or within the next couple of years, he'll be in ninth grade next year. And if it's on the syllabus of the school, I'm not going to make a big deal about it because I read it in high school and I was like, meh about it. Like I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily concerned with censorship. I really don't believe in censorship, but I think if you have a very troubled child mm-hmm. who like you can see that this young man or young woman is a Holden, I do not think they will catch the meta narrative. I think that those, those are, there are people who just take Holden at face value and are like, everybody's a phony. And, and there's, there is a potential for that to do something in the soul of a very troubled person. Hmm. I've got a question related to this and I'm going to say for the end. So let's move on to the next one. <laughs> Leela asks, what does Andrew Kern think about this book? <laughs> I, you know, I do Good question. I do remember growing up, he used to tell me that he really liked it. And, and, and I don't remember his reasons, but I remember he would tell me and then say, and you should read it later. <laughs> huh. That's all I remember. Um, but I, remember, I, I, I imagine it's one of those books he read in high school or college or something and had, you know, then went back to later. Um, he probably had it on a stack of 727 books next to his side of the bed. Um, okay, so Reed asks this. He says, I read this when I was 16. I absolutely hated it. That is not a question. And I found it to be completely obscene. I felt that way about The Color, the color Purple as well, which I read at 18. I did, however, get a lot more out of it this time round, and I was far less offended. What do you think is the appropriate age for someone to read this? I know that may be a hard ask, but we educators have to make the determination if we want our students to read this book. So I bring this question up now because it does tie into what you're talking about. Is there... But let's just talk about specifically about this age concept. Do you... I mean... Read. I don't mean to offend you, but do you guys reject the concept that there is an age at which books are appropriate to be read? Uh, no, I don't reject that. No, I don't think I reject that. Although Good. I wouldn't then say we don't have yeah. to offend. Read. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I would say it's more about development than age, but age and development are so tightly connected that right. that's probably too fine of a distinction. Yeah. Um. So, Tim, do you want to feel that you loved this book and you read it as a young man? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. David, what's the question? <laughs> what do you think is the appropriate age for someone to read this? By the way, as soon as you, as Heidi asked Tim, you I started thought, eating I thought, a corn muffin. I thought Tim was going to answer this, and I got a chance to put some food in my mouth, and then you. <laughs> <laughs> 
corn muffin. Where did no. that come from? I'm excited. I don't about know. That. I'm yeah. not eating yeah, I don't know. I'm actually <laughs> eating a, a Bojangles biscuit with blueberries and the icing on it. So, oh man, oh, that sounds amazing. Um, a blessed fast to you, David. Yes, yeah, something that something that Heidi wouldn't eat. Um, uh, all the Heidi doesn't eat all the good things. Um, I do eat good things. I eat delicious things. <laughs> Uh, so the question is, what do you think is the appropriate age for someone to read this? Knowing that this is a hard ask, but educators have to make the determination if we want our students to read it. It's He's right. That's true. You know, I think I would say college more than high school. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. High school does. I mean, I, I'm, I'm with Heidi. It, it just seems like I think it, the impact for a high school reader would be more significant, but I don't know many high schoolers that have developed enough to use Heidi's phrase, moral imagination to kind of like to deal with it in a healthy fashion. Okay. So am I saying that like, (laughs) I know a lot of college students there are, well, actually I do know some, yeah, I know some. So if I had to just choose between those two age groups, I would say, college but i think actually the perfect reader would be um someone in that pocket of time after college where you realize and hopefully well when you realize oh man the world does not revolve around me because previous to that life someone is always providing you something to do through the form of of school unless that you don't go to college and you you know, you go out and you get a job. For me, that was the moment when I graduated college that I, I had this big realization, man, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And you're either going to kind of like figure out something to contribute to the world. Um, or you're going to feel sullen about the world that the, you're going to feel sullen that the world, you know, is not that interested. And that was a big moment. That was a huge pivot for me. And I think that's a probably a really good time to be reading Catcher in the Rye, which oddly enough, it's around the same time that I read the book. Hmm. I a think, little bit after, but I I, I think that <laughs> I I mean I'm at the risk of offending Jesse Brown and everyone who loves this book, and I do love this book, but I wouldn't even like I don't know I, I wouldn't even put it on your curriculum. But not because I think it's a bad book. I just that like there are a lot of other books, and there's only so much time you can spend. And I think that there are other things that it, you might as well just have your high schoolers love. I mean, read. So I'm with Tim. It's probably more on the college age than high school age level. You know, I, there was a question that I asked early on in these podcasts, and the question was is Catcher in the Rye more than just the gateway drug to kind of like finer literature? Great question. And I think the answer is no. I actually think it's really fine literature, but I think it's treated as the gateway drug because the voice, two things. I think the voice of Holden Caulfield is just flawless. I think Mm -hmm. that it's, I think that Salinger is just so accomplished in that aspect of the book. And I also think that it's fine literature because it deals with the thing that we've been talking about during this podcast, the whole question of phoniness is, is it everybody else? Is it also me? Is there an escape from it? 
And I think that that is, I think that he almost, I, I suspect that he introduced that notion of double mindedness, like into the American lexicon through mm. literature. Mm. And there's even a question, I hope we talk about it today about whether or not, you know, we're kind of living after like in a post phony era or something That's like such that. A good question. It's a great question. And I, I'll find it. it, it, it well, I'll, I'll, I'll stop right there. So if we can answer that question, I can continue my rampage about, yeah, I just, I think this is a really good book and it has, it is explosive and dynamite is explosive and dynamite can be used for really good purposes and it can be used for really harmful purposes. And it seems like this book is the same way, but the, the trouble is you just don't know what it's going to do. Well, it's an explosive and you don't know what it's going to do when it's in the psyche of a reader. Is it a flaw that, that a young person would need a, a guide to a guide. help them pull out the meta narrative stuff that we've been talking about? Yeah, I, th- I would, I mean, I'll take a stab at answering that for Reed too. I, I do think this is, if you're going to just hand somebody Catcher in the Rye and say like, go read it, adults. If you're, if you're willing to teach the book, I, I think you could teach it younger. But if it's just like sitting in an armchair reading Catcher in the Rye, I think you must be an adult in order to get it. Not, not, and I'm not saying to like morally censor it, not because of the bad words, but because it's a, it, in spite of the fact that it is a literature gateway drug, there's so much to it. It's a very rich, very rich book. And it does it's a very sophisticated book. And, and because of that, I think you need a guide to read it or else you're just going to take Holden seriously. I was going to say, Heidi, I, I, I bet that you, you guys would probably say it would be really good for you if you were going to sit down and read Dante's Inferno to have a guide. Yes. But the guide, the role that the guide would play for the Inferno is to clarify a book that to a 21st century reader is very difficult to understand because it is such a 13th, 14th century book. But my suspicion is what you're saying about you want to place a guide with the reader of Catcher in the Rye, not because it's a difficult book to understand. It's in fact, really easy to understand the proper names and the various aspects of New York City the guide would have to play the role of sort of like a mentor of the soul. I think that there's, I think there's truth to that. And I think also just the idea of that, having a meta narrative that, uh, that Holden's unreliable, that if you do yeah, have some yeah. like trench coat mafia, 16 year old who's reading yeah. Hitcher and Rye, like then Holden is some kind of moral prophet to that mm-hmm. kind of reader. And so I, or, or a really happy-go-lucky, you know, bubbly cheerleader type reading Catcher in the Rye being like, oh my gosh, is this how I'm supposed to feel about the world, right? Like, so this, this <laughs> is my point about your, I think some of it is about just interpreting, hey, you don't have to believe Holden. Sometimes maybe it's just as much as just that. Well, it's, it, it strikes me then that the, there's a lot of other, like I mentioned other books, I, I you know, you can read a lot of other books that 
have some of the similar ideas that can prepare you or mm-hmm. similar approaches in terms of the meta narrative or voice or whatever that can that can prepare readers to be to be able to see what's in this book and that might be what i would do if you, if this like something you really want to emphasize this you can there's all kinds of other books like from from you know mark twain to you know uh, contemporaries of salinger that um that are doing similar things that that i think are that can teach you or can that can provide the like fertile ground so that when they do read it they're getting the right responses to it right so let's talk about post-catcher society. Kevin asks, are we now in a post-catcher society? He says, discovering that someone is a phony was a big deal in 1951. But today, don't we assume from the start that everyone is a phony and they have to earn their authenticity in our eyes? Man, I thought that was such an insightful question. Yeah, I agree. I think that's true. And I think because I, what's funnily enough, this is the, I don't even know, second or third time Andrew Kern has come up in this conversation. Um, I I had a conversation with Andrew about politics in which I essentially said exactly what he's saying, which I said, I just assume, like I'm I'm Gen X, right? I just assume that politicians are not idealists. I just assume that, that they are power hungry, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I don't, I assume they're phonies in a lot of ways because I lived... Uh, you know, I came alive to politics after Nixon and in this age of kind of jaded youth. And, um, and so I, the, the question of whether or not people are the, the average person, especially the average person in power is, or in, in some kind of hierarchical position, like a teacher or whatever is, uh, that was in many ways a question in Holden's generation and not in ours. Now I think we're wrong about that, but the, we're not uncovering phonies like, Oh, surprise, a phony. Like we just assume it. And so I thought that was a really insightful question. And I wondered what it would have been like to read this book at a time in which that wasn't part of the cultural understanding of people in power. It would be different. Yeah. Tim. I, I, I think it's a great question. I don't know that we live in a kind of a post-catcher society because I think one thing that Catcher in the Rye kind of can, alerted me to was that even was that um, I think Salinger's claim is that we are all phonies, and I think that is a really you have to deal with that message that even someone like Kurt Cobain, who has all the trappings of being like the ultimate authentic, you know, artist who believes in his ideals, that even Kurt, somebody like Kurt Cobain is a phony, is a, that's, a, that's always, always pertinent, if that makes any sort of sense. Mm-hmm. So I think in 1950, yeah, everyone's kind of like, it's, it's, there's this kind of willingness to put on a facade for the sake of kind of like um, playing a social role. And I do think that Holden is unique in that time. He's unique in that time that he's like pointing it out 
And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people that are pointing it out, but he does. So in that way, we live in a post-catcher, a post-catcher in the ride society for sure. But I think that this book is um, really powerful now because I think there are certain kind of um, stances that young people can adopt to the world that look really authentic. They look like they're, I'm being, I'm the genuine McCoy. I stand against such and such, or I stand against such and such. But there is a phoniness, even, even that is a stance. It's a mask. And it might look like it's an anti-phony mask, but it's still a mask. And I think the catcher in the rye has the capacity of saying, man, if there is such a thing as authenticity, it's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be much deeper than that. It almost has, it has to be like operating at a spiritual level, not just as a, as a kind of like posture. Mm. Right. A posture is never, a posture is always kind of put on and we are, we're always putting on postures. I realize that this may sound like horrendously cynical. I don't mean it to be so cynical. Well, I just think that Tim McIntosh noted cynic. <laughs> Wait, am I, or am I not in real life? <laughs> Every cynic is a disappointed uh, idealist. So you answer the question, Tim. Yeah. How disappointed oh, are know. you? Gosh, on a 10 point scale. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stretch it to 20. Give you a little bit more nuance. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it, I could, it could sound like what I'm saying is just like, oh, everybody's a phony. Everyone's adopting a posture. I, th- I mean, I think it's, it's, it's part of human behavior and human society that we do. We adopt different kind of like social roles and different masks. And, and um, there's a time in life when you can see, where you can think like that any sort of adoption of a role like that is necessarily inauthentic or false. No, I don't think so. I think that we, 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 it's part of kind of like, um, navigating human life and becoming, um, a loving person. If I may even say that, that, yeah, you have to figure out how you have to figure out whether there's something below all those kind of different kind of roles that we play that is genuine. And I think that catching the rye kind of points to, I think it kind of points to something spiritual beneath all of it. Hmm. Um, okay. Let's, we got a couple other questions that I want to get to that I, I think are going to be related to this. Um, and we only have a little, little bit of time left. So I want to, I want to jump to that. I don't, I don't mean to be abrupt, but as I always say, such is the nature of this episode. Okay. Katie says, can you please talk about the nuns with their suitcases? It struck me as so odd that Holden would feel uncomfortable with the disparity of wealth. Feels out of place with the rest of his experiences. And I really want to hear what you three think. So Heidi, this is chapter 15. He's with the nuns on the subway. They talk about Shakespeare and so forth. What, um, there's this line where he says, um, I hate if I'm eating bacon and eggs or something and somebody else is only eating toast and coffee. Uh-huh. And they let they let me give them ten bucks as a contribution, and they kept asking me if I was sure I could afford it and all. And I told them I had quite a bit of money with me, but they didn't seem to believe me. They took it though finally, and then so then yeah, they talk about Julius Shake, Julius Caesar and Julius Shakespeare. No, they talk about Romeo and Juliet, don't they? Uh huh. They do. Sorry, yeah, uh, Tybalt and all that. Uh, and then they talk about the Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy. Uh, 
So what do you think about all this? So that happens right smack in the middle of the novel, right? Interestingly enough, um, which you always want to pay attention to what happens in the middle of a novel. Um, So I think, of course, nuns, and he presents the nuns. I loved this. I love this scene a lot. And I completely forgotten about it when I read it uh, this time. I had forgotten about it the first, forgot about it from the first time I read it. And I loved it because he presents these nuns so positively. And there is a sense of kind of this childlike, eager connection with these people who are actually kind to him. It is a bright spot. I think in the book, one of the only ones in which he has a positive connection with somebody. Uh, of course, it's temporary, and um, and he, but he he talks to them about something that he loves, and he's generous with them, and he does have this moment, as as Katie points out, of the disparity, uh, the which haunts him throughout the novel. He does want to have an equal connection. He wants people to be happy. He wants to equalize uh, the disparity of um, whatever it is within the relationship. And so I think that this is just a little moment of hopefulness and positive connection within the novel. And I loved it. Tim? Tim? I think that there is something about the fact that the nuns are dressed as nuns. Mm-hmm. They are, they are separate. Like when a priest or a nun takes on that garb that sets them apart from society, I kind of think that more than even the kind of kindness is what draws Holden to them. Cause if you remember He's very dismissive of Jesus as my buddy. Remember the lecture yeah. when he's yeah. talking about Jesus as my buddy? He's so dismissive of that. And I think that he kind of groups that approach to Christianity in with a sort of like plasticness, a sort of phoniness. And I, I think that he sees the nuns as willingly signifying that they are set apart in some way. And I think that's his initial attraction to them. Now, if they had been unkind to him or something like that, maybe they would have gotten kind of like thrown in the phony bin also. But I, I, that's kind of my take on the nuns. Hmm. Well, I like Aaron. Aaron responded to this and she says that uh, she says, quote, I feel like Holden has a real radar for genuine acts of generosity and humility. And she says, I'm completely fascinated by the passage when Phoebe asks Holden if anything makes him happy. And he immediately thinks of the nun. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I like that she added that to the conversation. I, I, Cause I think she's right. I think he does have a radar for genuine acts of generosity and humility, which I think is one of the things that makes him, you know, he has that radar. So then when it, it makes him also aware of when things are fit false, you know, like mm-hmm. it works both ways, not just that he can see genuine things, but he can see the phoniness. So I think that the capacity to see something being phony is tied to the capacity to see some, to see something genuine and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's absolutely true of Holden. I think part of it is his search to figure out which is, which is um, it's like a, it wears on you, you know, like, like that. It's not mm-hmm. it, the capacity to see that can be, can be difficult. It can be disorienting. 
Um, are you, can we move on to one, one more before we mm-hmm. finish up here? Okay. Laura, um, <clears throat> she says, I had another great evening of discussion with local close, close readers. I hope you consider connecting IRL in your area, if you can, in real life. It's so uplifting and enlivening. And she had some questions that came up in their meeting that she wanted to, wanted to see if we could respond to. So first of all, yes, co-sign that you should do that. You should get together and have a close reads. And when you do that, you should take pictures and post them in the group so that we can see you all having that uplifting and enlivening time together. Okay. But she then asks, first, is it at all important or relevant that DB features at the very beginning and the end of the book? Are these appearances part of the tight structure or does DB have a connection with Holden similar to Phoebe that should be meaningful to us? Is he able to actually practice being present with and for Holden or are these token visits as in, you know, phony or has Holden misjudged parentheses gasp DB in his wounded hyperbolic commentary on everything? Heidi, what do you think? That's a great question. I do think it serves as a framing device um, in a structural sense. I think that that's part of the purpose of DB, the memories of DB at the beginning and the end. Um, And he is the original phony of the story. I think it's important that uh, psychologically for Holden in understanding him, that he, that there's an, an immediate member of his family that he harshly judges as a phony, right? Because then we kind of get a sense of why this matters so much to him. Um, on the meta narrative sense, Holden is himself a writer and he's judging his brother for giving up on his writing, um, for becoming a sellout in Hollywood. Whether or not he is misjudging DB, I think is interpretive up to the reader to say. Um, and, but, you know, Holden certainly has a history of judging people harshly and we're not really sure throughout the novel whether he's right. I do that in air quotes because people are so complex. When are we ever right or wrong when we're judging somebody, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, uh, but yeah, I think that the appearance and disappearance, I, I do think it's meant to be a genuine attachment. Like Holden, here's what I also, something I really like about Holden as a character is he is attached to his siblings. He does have a history of close relationship with all three of his siblings, even more than his own parents. It's very clear that he's more attached to his siblings than his own parents. And um, he, he spent a lot of time with them. He has a warm love for them. He's disappointed when he feels like they fail. He's traumatized um, by Allie's death. And Phoebe is his the, his figure of salvation in the novel. And so, um, yeah. Hmm. Tim, do you want to comment on this? No, no. I think Heidi said it well. I do actually think there is something to the idea that he's misjudged DB though. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and that's why I think he shows up outside of, in in a way, sort of outside of the story itself. Like as you mentioned, the framing device, I know it's in Holden's voice, but he, he talks about him visiting in the first chapter and the last chapter. And that's sort of, we can take that at face value because he's talking to somebody, you know, in the f- institution or, or, or whatever. And, and I think that, so while Holden may judge him, as a sellout, so to speak, because he goes to Hollywood and you know pursues that career, and, and Holden doesn't personally value that. There is still the sense in which DB has is making the effort to be there for his brother, um, and I think that one of the interesting things that might happen 
off stage, so to speak, is Holden learning to value that. That's I think that's I I, I think that his lack of appreciation for that is maybe um, one of the things that's like hovering over the novel in a sense. Okay, let's do this one last. There were so many um, uh, great questions in this. Somebody even asked if it's possible he made the entire story up being the world's biggest liar. Um, and we could talk about that, but I just don't know if we have... Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, there's, there's questions of deliriousness and hallucinations and all that. And honestly, I would Google that stuff because there's lots of writing about whether Holden made this whole thing up. And I consider all that to be a little extra textual, if that makes sense. Um, but Laura asks this from the hour. Okay. So yeah, from the outset, this was a love hate book for many of us. Many of us didn't feel good reading it. Others loved it even more. In one of the catcher episodes, Heidi addressed how reading in community offers important perspectives, insight. And she, Laura says she doesn't remember the exact words, but, but the point is reading together is better and perhaps necessary. So how has reading catcher this time around in a community with people who are gracious, heartfelt insight and so forth, um, or whose voices are those those adjectives? How has that changed and impacted how you read it? Sorry, I kind of butchered her question. But the idea is, how has reading in community changed your perspective on on this book? Given in particular that there are some things in this book that maybe you've there's maybe a little bit of uh, ickiness associated with, so to speak. Tim, do you want to address that first, or should I let Heidi address that first? Is the question, is the community of the three of us or is it like kind of the broader no, I think community the broader, of close readers? The, the broader community of close readers of which we are a part. Oh, man. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I think that I was much more affected by the community's affection for our last book. And I was kind of more shaped by that than I have been... Um, impacted by the community's kind of like reading on this book. And I think part of that is because it was my first time reading Peace Like a River. And this is like probably my third time reading Catcher in the Rye. So I'm not going to be able to give a very good answer about this book, David. If it was another book, maybe. But this book, I, I don't think I can give a very good answer. Heidi? I can. So I, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's a good answer, but it's an answer. You have words. Um, I have things to say. So um I so it's no secret that I, I I said at the beginning I was meh about this book when I first read it and that I hadn't read it since. Um and I found myself like vehemently defending this book. Um <laughs> and I stand by that, even though even in this episode I said some I think very legitimate reasons why it's uh why not to love it? But I, well, I hope Jesse didn't turn the episode off there and then right? not listen to what you're about to say now. Um, and I, st I do stand by my vehement defense of the reader's necessity. Like we must, we must humble ourselves before unlikable characters. And and I think that this book really, really is an opportunity for that. Not just with Holden, but with lots and lots of people in lots of characters in this novel. And I, I loved being able to, to defend it and think through a book that I wasn't drawn to the first time I read it. Um, and then the other thing is that I am just endlessly interested in how 
men read like man books. Like this is a book with a, like, <laughs> mm. with a, with a male narrator. And I read that a certain way and talking to the two of you, is just, I'm, I'm just always so fascinated by that. How the kinds of books, all books, but particularly books like this hit like the masculine soul. And, um, so seeing that on the um, and, and we have a community of women that are a community of readers. That's largely women too. And so male readers, please, please post about it. Um, and because I really, I'm so interested in that. Um, so seeing, being able to, to see a book, um, behind the eyes of like a different kind of person than I am is just always endlessly fascinating to me. And so that's why a lot of times reading in community just so shapes my readings of, of I, you guys pay attention to things I would never even notice. Hmm. And you interpret it differently. The, um, like you guys talked a long time, a few weeks ago about, um, kind of like the jostling <laughs> we talked a male, long time. <laughs> uh, between male peer groups. Oh yeah. Um, hmm. and that, I was like in the dorm like room, the dorm room scene by that, just like talk, keep talking about that, like that. And you both were like, I really related to that. So I always pay attention to yeah. things like that. Um, yeah, there's not so, one, but that's of all the moments in the book. That's the one moment in the book. Where I'm like, yep. Yes. And that I, I feel like I get to know you guys more and then I get to see the book differently. Um, and enter, and then that's what books are for. That's what books are mm. for. And mm. so I'm like always looking for that when I'm reading with people. Well, with that, we should probably wrap it up, but I want how do you, Heidi's been on fire this month. <laughs> <laughs> this, did you say this month? Because it's like the first show of the month. Well, the la- during the last month, oh, okay. so. 100% of the month I've been on fire. <laughs> Thanks. Tim. Yeah. You have been on fire. Thanks. Well, speaking of being on fire, I want to share something here before we go, because I have been saving this. There's a legendary Goodreads review of this book. And I mentioned Jesse before, Jesse Brown, and she's one of the Joe Coast readers who, you know, they, they purchased the auction item where you get to choose the book to do on the show. And they chose this book. And Jesse wrote a, a famous inst- a Goodreads review, at least famous among a few people, of this book. And I've been saving it to the end, and I want to read it. I want to read it here oh, on man. the show. So, this is Jesse Brown's. She's going to be so mad that I did this. This is Jesse's review of The Catcher in the Rye. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. In the first place, this is just a book review. The Catcher in the Rye was, no- <laughs> the Catcher in the Rye was nice and all, but it did make me cry a lot. I mean, it made me cry a lot. It was pretty funny in a way. Where I want to start telling is the day I first read it, after I stole it from a classroom in my high school. It wasn't like I was a kleptomaniac or anything. Really, I wasn't. (laughs) I just loved the cover. What I liked about it was the color. The reason I stole it was I started to read it, and the bell rang. I mean, the bell just rang. Bells are always doing that. It kills me. (laughs) Anyway, I first read it in high school. I was a pretty good reader, but I didn't always find good books. Boy, was this a good book. This was probably my first good book. I just mean that I used to read this old book a lot. And if you like, if you read it too much, you wondered what the heck was going to happen to Holden when he grew up. You probably just need to read it about a thousand times. Because if you read it enough, or just enough and not too much, you could figure out what, that he wasn't doing too bad for himself. For instance, he loved poor people. He loved them. He got a real kick out of giving money to nuns, say, or lending strangers <laughs> a turtleneck sweater. You, can get, you can't get a real kick out of giving nuns money and turn out too bad. 
And he was always inviting cab drivers mm-hmm. to get a drink with him and being real nice to little kids. He was real nice to them. You could tell he loved them, little kids and poor people. He just loved them. It made him feel awkward, awkward, of course. Those little kids and poor people and sick people, he could hardly stand sick people in their sad old bathrobes with their chest showing and that <laughs> grippy smell of Vic's nose drops all over the place. But you could tell he loved them. You could tell he wished he could protect every one of them. You can't love little kids, poor people, sick people, and girls who had lousy childhoods and turn out too bad. He was always trying to call this one girl, but he never felt like it. It was never the right time. I wish he called her. I really do. I really wish he called her. It's terrible when a guy can't call the girl he likes, but he can call Sally Hayes, old Sally Hayes, or when you can tell he feels homeless. It makes you feel so lonesome and depressed. Reading about Sally Hayes and drunk wanderings through New York City makes you wish you could just go home and talk to his kid sister. Reading this book makes you feel so depressed and lonesome. Holden Caulfield may get to be an alcoholic if he doesn't watch his step. I'm getting a little too personal. I realize that. It's just, this book is personal. It really is. You read it and think, boy, am I a phony? You read it and know absolutely that you want Holden Caulfield to like you. You really do. Mm. And you aren't even worried that if Holden Caulfield does grow up to be the kid, the kind where at the age of 30, he sits in some bar hating everybody who comes in looking as if he might've played football in college. You're not even that worried. But mostly you think he won't grow up that way anyway. You believe he may hate someone for a little while, but it doesn't last too long. After a while, if he doesn't see them, he will even sort of miss them. I mean, he will even sort of miss them. Old Holden really is is really quite admirable. The Catcher in the Rise is a swell book. It really is. It is a prince and a gentleman of a book. I think it's my favorite book. I just wish Holden didn't swear so much. I really do. <laughs> um, uh, he, she's, let's see here. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, and I know, I know why he was always calling everything in this book damned by God. I really do. He really felt that everything was damned by God, but I didn't like it still. It just depressed me. I have to admit it. But old Holden held me, held me in a trance. Like he really did. Um, P.S. If you must know, I'm pretty sure that Holden calls that one girl with a lousy childhood eventually. I'm pretty sure they get married, live in a cabin right near the woods, but not right in them because he wants it to be sunny all the time. They cook their own food and have children. Since he can't trust anybody in a school, they have their kids and hide them somewhere. They buy them a lot of books and teach them how to read and write by themselves. <laughs> That's Jesse Brown's review. That of was amazing. That was incredible. Hip, hip, hooray. Maybe I'm converted. Maybe all high schoolers <laughs> should read this book. That's amazing, Jesse. All right. Well, um, up next is uh, is Anne of Green Gables. So very if you thought, different book. <laughs> if you thought that Holden was a little too cynical for you, and if you and Heidi mentioned this is a man book, well, next books. I mean, it's not really a girl book because I like this book, but it's definitely a girl book, um, uh-huh. and uh, it is definitely much more earnest in its own way. Uh, so, Jesse, I challenge you to write an Anne of Green Gables review of Anne of Green Gables. Um, see if you can pull that one off. So we're going to do that. We're going to do the first seven chapters of Anne of Green Gables for next week. Um, also, wanted to let you know about a something that we've been we've decided to participate in. It's called Bookshops Bookshop.org, and what it is is it's kind of a they're they're an online bookseller. It's in many ways an alternative to Amazon. And if you go to Bookshop.org slash close reads, you'll find our page there. We've put all the books on the show, a bunch of other books that have been mentioned on the shows, uh, some books that we recommend. We're going to keep adding books and lists and things like that there. And what they do is they give 10% of every sale goes into a pool for local independent booksellers. And then that money gets divided up. And then uh, depending on where you get it, eat from anywhere from 10 to 25% goes to affiliates like us. So whereas on Amazon, it's like 4.5% for a sale. 
they give a lot more to affiliate programs, uh, book communities, and bookstores. So it's a little bit more expensive than Amazon, but it's an alternative where the whole design is to help independent bookstores and um, to be a little bit more uh, friendly to affiliates and things like that. So if those things are things that matter to you, or if you want to kind of support the show a little bit, um, then we would appreciate it if you go to bookshop.org slash close reads um, to, you know, when you're making book purchases uh, for the show or otherwise. Um, and it's also just a really cool, really cool thing. Um, they really are trying to help booksellers. They have this thing where when you check out, it'll ask you if you want to opt into the marketing. And then it's a way to, con- to connect local booksellers with you. And on, on your receipt, it will even tell you these are the bookshops that are like the independent local bookshops that are in your area. So they're not just trying to like take over the market. They're trying to actually build an infrastructure that helps booksellers. Um, Man, and, I like this. And so then booksellers themselves can become affiliates. So an independent bookseller can become an affiliate on there. And then you can go through their page to buy your books online. So then that bookseller could focus on running their bookshop instead of having to, you know, do online inventory. And then, and, and so it, it's better for everybody in a way. Um, like I said, it, yeah, it is a little bit more expensive than Amazon, but if you can make it work, then, um, we would appreciate the support. I know they would appreciate the support. And it's a great way to like, just help the, the independent book community, um, across the country. So check that out again. It's bookshop.org slash close reads. Just want to, I mentioned it on Facebook, but I wanted to mention it here as well. All right. Any final thoughts from either of you uh, on Catcher in the Rye before we say goodbye and then dive into Anne of Green Gables next week? Just to confirm, I am very willing to have my mind changed by people like Jesse Brown. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just so floored by that. That was really beautiful and lovely and a very, very amazing example of the redeemed imagination approaching the... Uh, the book that explores what it means to be broken. And I think Jesse mm-hmm. really captured that in her review. And that I think is a, to go back to that word, we haven't defined a redemptive way to read a book like this. Mm-hmm. Tim. No, I got nothing. I think leaving the last word with Jesse and Heidi is the way to go. Mm. Well, thanks to the uh, Joe Coast readers for um, paying that, you know, pay, paying for the auction item and for choosing this book and for participating in the conversations. I think it was, it was a lot of fun to talk about this book. All right. Well, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, and for Jesse Brown's review, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back next week as we dive into Anna Green Gables. Between now and then, happy reading. Happy reading.